The more we went down the rabbit hole, the more we found. The irony of Indian Creek is that while certain areas are crowded, there is a vast landscape of buttresses to explore, with new routes abound. Even though when the rabbit hole led to buttresses that weren't any good for climbing, there was still this sense of adventure that we were visiting places that had hardly ever seen a visit from a human being. With all this newness and openness in the air, the search for new routes began. It started simply enough. We began carrying drills in our packs to fix up old anchors and make them safe for ourselves and the general public. The nature of the sandstone in Indian Creek is delicate, to say the least. But then we would see a line around the bend, the ridge, just out of plain sight, that appeared as though it had never been climbed. We already had the drill up there, so we'd arm ourselves with it and the necessary tools to do the battle until the crack was a climb. Welcome to episode 18 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. From the climbing zine, I am Luke Mihal. And we're getting into the desert. We got up all high on El Cap. Now we're uh, going into the desert and the Bears Ears National Monument area. Although you won't necessarily see that phrase in the book because it was not proclaimed Bears Ears. Actually, um, later in that same year, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a blur, hasn't it? It's been crazy. But um, I'm all for the National Monument status. And I think it was a great decision um, by the Obama administration working with the Bears Ears Annual Tribal Council and other nonprofits like Friends of Cedar Mesa and the Access Fund. But we'll get to that more in season two with the desert. Um, that's what we're going to be doing for season two once this season is completed. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art, based out of Durango, Colorado. Sticker Art makes some of the coolest stickers around. Every sticker tells a story, and you can get a 20% off your purchase as a coupon code just by typing in DIRTBAG at checkout. Check them out. You can support this podcast by subscribing to The Climbing Zine, um, throwing down some dough on Patreon, or just picking up some zines. That's been a real popular option this year of just we got these bundles together and we sell them for you know, about as cheap as we can to get them to you guys and get you reading and um, check us out. Check out all those links in the show notes if you want to support us, if you've been enjoying this. And let's get into the next episode for my dirt bags, for my climbers, and for the people who want to be dirt bag climbers. This is episode 18 of the Dirt Bag State of Mind podcast. There, in the desert, came a parting image for my climbing career in my 30s, which building on the base of experience and the reality of physiology can be the greatest times for the greatest climbs of one's life. That year, like every year, we held Creeksgiving, our annual Thanksgiving celebration in Indian Creek. The modern incarnation of Creeksgiving, our version at least, was born out of necessity, when it was raining and we were bored. When Alpinist asked me to write an article about it, this is how I described the birth of our Creeksgiving. An acid test of sorts for the climbing community, this non-event was born of friends gathering for Thanksgiving weekend in the Super Bowl campsite in the early 2000s. There was a man they called the mayor, a stubble-faced sage who took care of everyone with a slyly welcoming grin. 
One year, it rains as it never does in the desert, continuously filling up the long-forgotten washes and ensuring that the Wingate sandstone is soaked for days. Sure, we could start drinking, but instead we stage a 4K foot race around the campground. I pull out a variety of costumes out of a duffel bag. Our friend Sean works for an athletic company, and he produces a bag of socks and hats. That night we have a dance-off. People wrestle in the mud. Grown men driven to madness by rain and alcohol, withering on the desert floor. And that was just how it began. It was overwhelmingly male and drunken. The dance-off was just me and Mark. It ended when I tried to jump over him and ended up kicking him in the back of the neck. For a moment, I thought I'd paralyze one of my best friends. Mostly, what I remember from that first year was being wet and how much fun that little foot race around camp was. The next year, that glorious desert sunshine returned. Women showed up. The dance-off was crazy. Many participants, costumes, a half-marathon, running out to the South Six Shooter from camp, jumaring up it, and then running back. More traditions came about, but the most impressive was the thankful circle. For a moment in time, the partying stopped, and everyone got quiet and still. Each and every one of us said what we were thankful for. The themes were always something about nature and our community. It was never about money, dominance, or success. I don't know if the word utopia is fitting, but in those moments, faces lit by a massive fire, stars beaming above in the stillness of a desert November night, I knew our culture was on to something. That was the foundation of what built up this Creeksgiving. For the starting line of the races, Sean had constructed a structure that he dubbed Adam's Arch, with prayer flags flying in the breeze. From the right angle, the arch framed the North Six Shooter and giving it a sacred feel. This celebration had a sacred feel. Adam loved Creeksgiving, especially the half marathon we named the Turkey Shooter. He called it America's Greatest Foot Race. That year, the turnout went from 30 or 40 of us to over 100. I never felt like it was too many. I wanted this event to be the gathering of the dirtbags, where we would meet one last and final time for the year and share food, drink, and ideas. Meeting new friends and sharing seemed to be the ultimate way to end the climbing year. The more you climb, the more you realize climbers are some of the greatest people on this planet. The food table was as long as an incredible hand crack, with a cue to match. The mayor had cooked several turkeys in fire pits all day, tending to them while everyone else was out running, climbing, or on vision quests. He didn't say much, but everyone knew he was the man, the guy in charge without ever saying he was. That's a leader for you. Tim was the other leader, the host of the campfire games, and of course, the thankful circle. He was sober now, too, and a much better host, I should add, after he made the switch from beer to soda for his nightly beverage. And we made a better DJ team, too, for the dance-off, now that he was sober. That night, we danced wildly, until the wee hours of the morning, giving thanks to life, and acting wild, not the reckless abandon of binge drinking, but rather the celebration of the divine beast within, and sharing everything with our people, our culture. The next morning was the hangover, which is never much of a problem in the desert. It's not like you have to get up and go to the office and hide your shame of a night spent going too big. You move slowly, maybe hit the peace pipe for some relief, get your coffee going, and then eat a big breakfast. That usually takes care of the hangover. This hangover was the one for the event. Some bystanders, part of it, but not fully invested, said there were too many people. We were too loud. I thought we came there to party, to celebrate. We always meticulously cleaned up after ourselves following these events, living the site pretty much the same, if not better than before. That said, 
we listened to their complaints. That following spring came the final blow. At Creekster, a little knockoff celebration over Easter weekend. Just as we were about to have a big dance-off, we caught the police spying on us. We felt like teenagers, but with the repose of being adults. We just went over to the cops to ask why they were hiding in the bushes, and that we could help them. They told us that they were there for our own safety. We knew they expected someone to smoke some weed, and they would step in and write a massive ticket, as the fine for weed in Utah is over $1,000. Instead, we smoked no weed and held a silent mustache competition. Even the applause was done silently. Rumor has it, back at the station, one of the cops was saying to their sergeant, Well, we didn't bust them for anything, but they were actually really quiet and apparently have a thing for mustaches. Any other leads there for us, Serge? And that was the end of our Creeksgiving in Super Bowl. We moved our own celebration to a more low-key campsite and toned down on the partying. Not necessarily because we almost got busted, but because we were all toning it down on the partying. Shortly after, a new type of human being started appearing at our celebrations. Babies. Plus, when it comes down to it, we go to the desert for one pursuit above everything else, the climbing. For years, I've been driven to get high on big walls. It was where my heroes treaded, and it was where the purity of climbing exists. Those experiences, half a mile above the floor of the earth, led to the greatest revelations, highs, visions, and clarity of mind. After El Capitan, my desire for wall climbing diminished. Perhaps it was growing older, or perhaps it was just my surroundings. The Black Canyon was no longer an hour away. Yosemite was no longer my waking dreams every day. Durango was so close to the desert, and thus the desert became all that mattered to me in climbing. Just like wall climbing, the desert is a fantastic rabbit hole to go down. I started to view the desert in a multitude of ways, as a home, as a canvas to paint my art, my own field of dreams where I could turn to a childlike state of being with the hindsight of an adult, a place where I could progress my vision of what it meant to be an American climber. I started to visit Indian Creek in each and every season and learned her moods and her colors. I watched and studied the crowds. Some days I was simply part of that crowd, just another climber lining up at the base of a splitter crack, waiting to test my mettle. I camped with my friends, new and old, in numbers oftentimes large, huddled around a massive fire. The hordes of people, rather the hordes of us, we were and are predictable. Busy in the prime time in the spring and the fall, the numbers swelled larger and larger every season. The parking lots, by force of automobile or by paving from the government, got larger and larger. Other times, like in the summer, you could have this entire place to yourself, or so it seemed. A place is not a place that can be a home to a young person unless he has made love in that place. In my younger dirtbag days, the desert would always magnify my loneliness. There was always so many more dudes around than ladies, and that started to change in the climbing world, right around this new decade. And that was okay then, for it is good for a young person to be lonely when he is alone. The true crime is being lonely and being surrounded by so many people, the way a human is lonely in a city. So where I once prayed to the stars for the simple comforts of a woman, ten years later, moving as stars and dreams often do, everything was given and answered. In Super Bowl, where we once had massive epic parties on Thanksgiving, in the summer the land was back to quiet and uncrowded. My new lover and I could walk around naked if we wanted to and not be noticed. It was so hot, though, that perhaps you did want to be naked, but this is the desert. It's not always romantic. The reality of bug bites and other venomous creatures usually took away the notion of this place being a romantic paradise. In the summertime, the snakes, scorpions, and spiders 
outnumber the climbers you'll see. When I found my stride again, making love in a tent, while the heavens erupted into a magnificent thunderstorm, there was always a feeling of belonging, a feeling I was home. On trips like these, in the so-called off-season, conditions were far from ideal for climbing, so we hiked and explored. I realized that in my 15 years of climbing there, I'd overlooked so much, or maybe this place just needed that long to feel comfortable with me, and for me to feel comfortable with it. One day while hiking, we stumbled upon these massive petroglyphs, 20 feet tall and 15 feet off the ground. Some looked like deer and elk, other hunters, and some appeared to be beings from another planet. I could hardly wrap my mind around their massive size and how and why the artist created them. Was it the beauty of the desert that drove him or her to create these works of art that outlasted the people living there? Or was it boredom? Or was it something as big as an alien life form visiting and they had to share their message? None of these questions were answered. The more we went down the rabbit hole, the more we found. The irony of the creek is that while certain areas are crowded, there is still a vast landscape of buttresses to explore, with new routes abound. Even when the rabbit hole led to buttresses that weren't any good for climbing, there was still the sense of adventure that we were visiting places that had hardly ever seen a visit from a human being. With all this newness and openness in the air, the search for new routes began. It started simply enough. We began carrying drills in our packs to fix up old anchors and make them safe for ourselves and the general public. The nature of this sandstone in Indian Creek is delicate, to say the least. Then we would see a line around the bend, the ridge just out of plain sight, that appeared as though it had never been climbed. We already had the drill up there, so we'd arm ourselves with it and the necessary tools to do the battle until the crack was a climb. This process got addictive, and on every rest day, I'd find myself hiking new cliffs. Most of the time, the hikes led to nothing more than a good view. One day, Tim joined me on a hike, and we found a slab that looked like a meteor had struck it, like a basketball-sized rock from space crashed right there, leaving a crater in the slab. We shook our heads in amazement. That day, we drove up a canyon no climber ever really drives up, and hiked up a wash no one ever hikes up. After an hour and a half of trudging, sweating, and cursing, we got to the rock where we hoped to find our new dream wall. Tim was as hooked on the experience as I was, and never flinched when I suggested these hikes, which usually were just dead ends in the rabbit hole. This buttress we found that day was the absolute worst section of rock either of us had ever laid our eyes upon in the creek. We hiked alongside it for what seemed like for hours, no signs of weakness in the rock in the form of cracks, the only way to climb in the creek. The sun turned the corner onto this west-facing cliff in the afternoon, and we sweated, and cursed some more at our lack of luck. But we kept hiking, and then we found something. As a writer, when I've interviewed people, it's like you're always trying to coax something out of them. I've noticed something, though. At the end of the interview, when I put the pen down and we're just talking, that's when they say the most profound, articulate things. Like for my lack of trying, just sitting there listening, that's when the magic happens. And on that day, when Tim and I gave up, we found our holy grail. We turned the corner, basking in the sun, dehydrated, feeling like we were on a quest with no ending, cottonmouth, spaced out, and we came across a perfect splitter crack that looked like it arched leftward to the heavens for a couple hundred feet. And then we found a cave, and there were many cracks in it. Most importantly, we didn't see any evidence of human activity. This was the cliff that the birds still owned. We walked down the wall, and everything was there, that a good Indian Creek wall needs to be a classic. Good hangouts cracks right next to each other, in a killer view. Then we found another cave. It was trippy. Of all the walls in Indian Creek, only one of them has a cave in it. 
the Appalachian cave route at the Battle of the Bulge Buttress. For us, it was like discovering gold, climber's gold. Both of the caves we found were bigger than the ones at the Battle of the Bulge. The second one we came across refracted the craziest light, a purple hue with an aura that it was neither day nor night. Instead of dark and intimidating, this little cave was welcoming. Once we stepped out of the cave, we were reminded of our surroundings again. This view was a new one for us, to the southwest, to the southern edge of the canyonlands unfolded. A tight maze of canyon, white cap, sandstone fins, needles, and many towers. Then there was the ever-proud six-shooter towers. The north six-shooter stood tall, proud, like the older brother, protecting the region, a monument to the absurd, acquired beauty of this desert. And there was much in between, with a blue sky overhead. The discovery had been made, but there would be little instant gratification. We began an hour and a half long stumble back down, down loose gullies through chinley layers that feel like you're walking on ball bearings. A busted ankle out here would mean a long rescue. We hiked and hiked and lost our excitement for our discovery because we were fatigued. And then we got lost and couldn't find the car. But just as the sun was going down, we realized we overshot it. And Tim's old Toyota truck appeared out of nowhere. Right, that was episode 18 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. Rereading that uh, material makes me uh, really fond and really miss the desert right now. It's been a couple months since July as we're recording this, and you know, so much has evolved with that area, with uh, it becoming Bears Ears National Monument uh, when the Obama administration worked with the Bears Ears Intertribal Council and a lot of other groups, and then it was shrunk um, by uh, the current president, the bad one, the shitty one. The fight will continue, I guess, that this area could be protected, but the more time out there, the more I'm impressed with um, the beauty of the landscape, and then also um, some of the things I've come across in the climbing environment where the ancestral Puebloans were actually climbing steep cliffs with uh, a variety of techniques, uh, moki steps, yucca ropes, things like that. You can read about those actually in the climbing zine. Uh, volume 15, Len Nessifer and Josh Ewing both wrote articles that involved yucca ropes. It was a crazy coincidence they were both working on their articles at the same time. You can support our podcast at the links in our show notes. We're on Patreon. You can subscribe to the climbing zine. Or just pick up some copies, and you can even subscribe to The Climbing Zine. If you don't have an address, you can choose the Dirtbag Treatment option. Music comes from Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Chad Rich is our digital editor and producer for the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. Coming at you from Durango, Colorado, I'm Luke Mihal. 